Father, thank you for a beautiful day out and for bringing us safely to your house to worship you and to study your word. I pray that you would guide our discussions now and help us to understand your word that we may apply it to our lives and be godly men and women for you in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we're, um, as I said last week, we got through half a slide, talked about church discipline. And uh, I would encourage you um, to go out to the, I, I don't know if it's on the church website or not, I think it is on the church website, but you can read our church's discipline policy. Um, that's one of the things we spent a lot of time working on. And uh, I don't know, it's about seven or eight pages long. And it describes how we apply Matthew 18 here at Open Door. And basically, we do the same thing that Matthew 18 says, except we add a couple of steps um, with the church life board before we actually bring it to the church as a whole. Yeah. Um, but uh, you can go read that on your own. And probably, and this is interesting here, and as you look at the reformers, um, they basically had, and I'm now I'm going to forget one of these because I'm getting old, but they basically had three marks of a church. Like what, what is it that made a church a church? All right, how, how do you define what a church is, other than just a bunch of people getting together? And one of those was the exercise of church discipline. And the second thing was the administration of sacraments, baptism, communion. And I forget offhand what the third one is. I think it was the preaching of the word. But those are the three things they saw as the marks of what made a church a church, other than just a group of people getting together. One of them being church discipline. A church exercises church discipline. And what, what's the goal of church discipline? To kick them out? To restore. To restore, always, to restore. Um, to mend, to make whole. It was, it's never intended to just kick people out of the church for the sake of kicking them out of the church. And it needs to be done with the right attitude. It needs to be done in humility because we can all be tempted as well. Um, but it's a necessary part of maintaining a healthy church. If you don't do church discipline, what happens over time? Things fall apart. Uh, Roma, or not Romans, Revelation chapter 2 and 3 has the messages to the seven churches. And what you find in church 1, Ephesus, that was the church that lost its first love. They were really doctrinal. I mean, they had their doctrine down pretty good. But they didn't have any heart. Second church was the persecuted church. They didn't have anything negative about them. But then the third church, the uh, problem there is they were tolerating a little bit of sin. They weren't dealing with sin in the church. And then you get to the fourth church, and what was tolerated in the first is sort of open in the second, and in the fifth, it's taken over the church and just about killed it. The problem is if you allow sin to exist in a church, it's going to leaven the whole church. It's going to rot the whole church. That's why it's a serious thing. We don't like to do that because, you know, again, we live in this pluralistic age where, you know, live and let live, and who am I to judge anybody else? But if you allow sin, it's like cancer. If you got a little spot of cancer on your skin, it's easy to cut that off, right? But you don't do anything about it, what happens eventually? You're dead. It takes over. Right. And so there's no guilt. Guilt is bad and, you know, 
said, and and now you know there's it's okay, and they don't feel guilty, they don't repent, and it's okay. Yeah, and that's that's what we're fighting out in the world. There is no such thing as sin. If you're guilty, just keep doing it till you don't feel guilty anymore. That'll take care of it. All right. Um, but in the church, we are to deal with it seriously, not because we hate people, but because we love people. You show me a parent that doesn't discipline their kids, I'll show you a parent that hates them. You hate your child. If you don't discipline your child, you hate that child. And that's what it says in uh, Hebrews chapter 12, whom the Lord loves, he chastens. Right? If God doesn't care about you, he'd just let you go off and do your own thing. But, and this is the thing, what we need to do. Our problem is we've got the wrong definition of love. Our definition of love in this society is sort of live and let live, be generous, be kind, let people do their own thing, don't judge. That's our definition of love. That's not what love really is. Love is caring for one another, and sometimes that caring means you have to step on their toes. Or you have to confront their sin. Not because you're holier than them, but because you care about them. And that's the whole concept here of church discipline. Moving on, what's another purpose of the church? And it's to provide fellowship for the believers. What's the fellowship mean? When we talk about fellowship, what do you think of? Two fellows in a ship. Yeah, two fellows in a... I, you know, I hate to see him without his medication. You know? I'm glad he takes it every day, I'll tell you. Um, what is fellowship? Togetherness. Share, and that, the Greek word is sharing, koinonia. Um, it means to share. It means to share in body life. It's to share life with one another. Now, I don't know about you, but who the, the people I like hanging around with the most are Christians. I like just hanging around with them. Why? Yeah, we have... We have fun and we don't have to worry about the hangovers, right? You can put up with me. What? We just have a great, you know, yeah, I can do that. But, but we can share with one another. And, and the idea of sharing here is it just, it goes beyond just the social sharing. We share in the joys and the sorrows of each other, right? I mean, if I have a bad hair day, I want to hang around with people who are Christians. Why? Because they, we share with one another. Encourage one another. Admonish one another. Build one another up. And there's nothing more odd than being in a group of people where you just don't connect in with them any. You just don't fit. And they are having fun that doesn't feel like fun. No. No, their fun isn't fun. Fun is going out to eat at an all-you-can-eat seafood place with Larry Russ, <laughs> Roger Johns, and the Melton Brothers. I, I thought we were getting thrown out of there. We were having so much fun. <laughs> Larry Russ came back with a plate of peel-and-eat shrimp, and I, I'm, I guarantee you, if you'd have put one more shrimp on that plate, it would have all fell off. I didn't know you could pack that many shrimp on a plate. And he came back with a stack of crab legs that high on a plate. That's a doggy plate. And he ate them all. I don't, want, I don't know where they put them. He must have three stomachs. It must be like Alf, you know, with four stomachs or something like that. I have, but we, clean fun. No regret fun. Um, enjoy one another. We, we laugh with one another. We, that's what sharing is. And that's, 
That's what it says here in 1 John 1, 3. What is the basis of our fellowship? We have fellowship one with one another because we have fellowship with Christ, right? And if you can fellowship with Christ, you can fellowship with each other. And I find this, you know, when I go out of state or I go to a Christian conference or something like that, boy, I'll tell you what, I just fit in. I feel like I fit into that place. And why is that? Because everybody there is fitting in with Jesus. As long as everybody's fitting in with Jesus, you're going to fit in with one another. It's fellowship. It's sharing. Yeah. Yeah, you feel you feel it, don't you? you feel it. There's nothing better than hanging around other believers. There's nothing better than sitting in a congregation with five thousand men all singing the old hymns. I, I I get goosebumps on my skin. You know, just boy, you talk about being close to heaven. That's about as close as you can get. Better than West Virginia. Um, it's just great to be with other believers. It's great to be around them. And what is the nature of the fellowship? It's sharing. Sharing what? Well, sharing life. Sharing our concerns. Sharing our cares. Sharing our sorrows. Sharing our joys. It's neat to be around other Christians when they share what God has been doing in their life. And I don't know about you, but when I sit in a church service and I hear somebody's um, testimony of how they came to know the Lord during baptism... I'm almost brought to tears at times. Now, that's not a macho thing to say, but that's just, that's the way it is. Why? Because there's joy that people come to know the Lord, and I don't know, there's nothing quite like it. And what is heaven going to be like? It's going to be a time of eternal fellowship with one another. Going over to Paul's place for dinner some night, and staying there for a couple of years and just talking to him. I don't know how it's going to work in heaven, but I can imagine, I guess. But it's sharing. And what causes that sharing to crumble? Sin. sin. And what is sin? Focusing on me then rather than you. Yeah. Sin is when I start looking at myself. And that's one of the problems I have with some of the modern notions of church where we have this consumerism mentality. Find a church that I like the program and the music. And we come in there and sit like a bump on a log in a pew. And as long as the performance is going the way we want it, we're, we'll stick around. But as soon as they change the format of the performance, we go somewhere else. What kind of sharing is that? That's, that's a self-centered approach to church. Church is not about what you get out of it necessarily. It's what you put into it. And what you find is as you come to church and as you put in yourself, as you share with other people, as you minister to other people, what happens in return? They get minister you get ministered to you. Minister to one another. All right. If you put a hundred people in a room and every one of them is concerned about the health and well being and joy of the other, you've got 99 people ministering to you, right? But if you put 100 people in a room and they're all concerned about what's in it for them, how many people are ministering to you? One. You. So think about it. I don't come to church here so that 
necessarily I get ministered to, although it happens. I come to church here because this is where I can minister. This is where I can put something in. And I find as I put, the more I put in, the more it gets reflected back to me. But as soon as I come here and I'm in it, what's in it for me and what my comfort zone and what I like and what I want, then church loses its luster. And what you have today is a church full of consumerists that want it, you know, they want it their way. And again, these are some of the reasons I've heard for people leaving the church. Uh, I don't like the music. We got different kinds of music format here. Get over it. It's okay. Uh, I don't like uh, this. I don't like Pastor Jim preaching so long. I want to. I knew one guy that left here because he says if you can't preach a sermon in 15 minutes, it's not worth hearing. And my response is, well, don't let the door hit you on the way out, buddy. Um, what, you, what kind of silliness is that? Or, or I, don't like, I don't like the fact that he uses stories. Well, so what? I mean, this is the kind of stuff. Look, you know why we're laughing at this? Because we know it's true. I mean, it's not about you. You understand, the Christian life is not about you. That's what you're told on TBN. Come to Jesus and he'll make your life happy and fulfill all your dreams. That's not what the Christian life is about. It's about fulfilling God's dreams for you and you find that that is the best. That's the best. You want the best for yourself? Go with what God's plan is for your life. That's the best for you. It's not the worst. Yeah. Yeah. He's one of the last Democrats that said something I agree with. That's a joke. All right. But the point is, he's, he's right. I mean, what? You 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 come to church for what you get. Why did Paul want to go visit the Roman believers in Romans chapter one so he could be benefited? No, because he could minister to them. He said, I came because I wanted to minister to you. I wanted to bring something to the table. Now, did Paul get ministered to in return many times? Well, sure he did. But that's not why he went. He went so that he could pour his life into other people. Why did Christ come? Mark 10, 45. We're going to get to that pretty soon. To serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He didn't come to be served. He came to serve. And see, when you're serving one another in the church, some of these little petty stuff that, that really warp people and get them all upset, goes away. I know somebody that left the church because they didn't get to sing enough solos. Wow. That's a good reason to leave a church. Now, here's what happens, just as an aside. They don't say that. That's not the reason they give. They give some theological reason. But the real reason is somebody stepped on their toes or they didn't get what they wanted. I think too it all goes back to the spiritual maturity. And yep. As much as that's part to gauge in the church because everyone's at different levels and stuff like that and we can't judge but I think um, the spiritually mature Christian is going to be the one who can you know look at all those things and like you know get filled and give because I mean there does come a point where 
you know, like it's like a baby Christian, you have to grow so much mm-hmm. until you can actually give back. Right. You know what I'm saying? I mean, just, just like a baby. I mean, you're dependent on the bottle until you get strong enough where you can go to the table and feed yourself. But yeah. even, even baby Christians, and I, I agree with you, there's, that's, that's a good point, but even baby Christians can't bring something to the table. Even baby Christians, everybody who is a Christian has the Holy Spirit within them, right? They have a spiritual gift, right? And they can exercise that spiritual gift. Now, they may not be, you know, the, the same level as, as somebody who's been a Christian for 20 years, but they can minister, you know? Right. There's a freshness to it. You know, and yeah, there is there 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 is a sense in which, as we mature, we should get better at this. But even as a newborn Christian, we can experience the joy of fellowship by giving of ourselves. In fact, the, the newborn Christian puts, I'll speak for me, sometimes puts me to shame if I'm feeling kind of lackluster because this, that, or the other thing is not right, and there's this. Well, it's like having a child who's just fascinated with the flower, the dandelion in the backyard, and to you it's just an irritating weed. You know, it's good to have that fresh perspective. And that's why we all share with one another, because we all bring something to the table. And so what our desire is as Christians to do is how can we be a positive influence on other people? That's what it means to encourage one another and admonish one another. How can I positively influence you? If my interaction with you in the church makes you want to go home and hang yourself, I've not, that's not a very positive thing, right? And yet we all know Christians that are that way. So what do we want to do? We want to be positive. And can we do that? Sure we can, because why? We have the Holy Spirit in us that empowers us to do that. And that's what sharing is all about. It's, it's mutual encouragement, lifting one up. And we do this also in prayer, right? We're to pray for one another. What are some of the responsibilities of fellowship? Let's look at this a little bit deeper. What, what are some of the things we should do in sharing? Well, number one, we confess our faults one to another. Now, what does that mean? Now, understand, I'm very much against the psychological concept that I come in and I am purely transparent with you. I don't believe in that. All right? And the reason I don't believe in that is because there's some things that I don't want you to know about me. Why? Because I'm a fallen person. And it would absolutely freak you out. Let's face it, right? We can't be openly transparent in a fallen state. But what can we do? Well, if I'm struggling in a particular area over something, find somebody to pray for you. Find somebody that you can confide in to to help you, right? And we all need to find though that someone that we someone. can be that transparent with. Yeah. That we trust enough that can come in and say to us those worst things in us you know, need to be dealt with. But even then, I think there's a, there's a certain decorum and, and sensibility about what we share. Right. You know. Or, or you, can't, you can't dump all your deepest, darkest secrets necessarily. But you know, if you're struggling with something, if you're struggling with gossip, find somebody that can help you with that and, and confess your faults to one another and ask them to pray for you. Now, you need to be careful who you say that to, right? And I, don't, I wouldn't 
recommend you go and say it to everybody in the church. But if there's a problem that you have or a difficulty in a particular area of sin, confess your faults one to another and, what's it say, and pray one for another. Go to your friend and say, you know, I'm really struggling at work this week. I'm really having a hard time. Would you pray with me? Those, those are the kind of things we do in a family, right? If you have a family member that's struggling with something, what do you do? You help that person. You pray for that person. You encourage that person. So if you have a struggle in your life, whatever that struggle may be, whether it's a sin, whether it's a person, whether it's some circumstance, whether it's some trial, confess that to another person and have them pray for you. That, that's part of sharing. And by the way, if somebody asks you to pray for them, what should you do? Pray. Right then. Don't spread it. Yeah, nope. pray for them right then. Right? Right, and, and there's, a, there's a balance there, and that needs to be worked out. Um, yeah, but, but I'm not, what I'm trying to say is I think there's a certain sense in which you, you don't want to come and just lay every deep, dark secret out to somebody. Right. And, and maybe as that relationship with that person matures, over time, there are those friends, people in our lives that we can do that with. That, that's not an issue. That's not, I don't think that's an issue. And that's so important to be able to do that thing for most, all of us. Mm -hmm. But not only do our friends get rid of, handle, deal with that 
ugliest, darkest. Yeah. So I agree with you. I, you know, you have to look at the person. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to get at. What I'm trying to get at is when you have a Christian prayer group and you know, I say, okay, do you have anything to pray for? And somebody just unloads an entire lifetime of crud on everybody. That's not helpful necessarily. What is helpful is to find somebody, maybe like a counselor, somebody that you can do that to. And that's, when it says confess your faults to one another, it does say confess your faults to everybody else. I just come from, you know, Right. And I wouldn't just call up in the phone and does stuff. It has to be yeah. an appropriate time. Yeah. But here's another thing I think that's important here too. One of the things, and, and without trying to open a can of worms and dump them all out on the table, um, I think one of the things that has probably one of the big misconceptions in the church is that in order for me to um, get help or, or to, to have help with an issue, I need to see a professional. All right, I don't buy that. Are there times when professionals are needed and helpful? Yes, there are. But by and large, I think a lot of us could be benefited if we just had a good friend that we could share with. We're all, by the way, who's, who is the great comforter and great counselor anyways? The Holy Spirit. All of us in here who are believers and who study our Bible and understand the scripture, in a sense we are, and I like what Jay Adams says, we're competent to counsel. Now are there those tough cases where maybe we need some assistance or, or that person would be better served by someone else? Of course there is. But a lot of times we are thinking that, well, if I'm struggling in this area, my only hope is to go and find a f professional counselor. Maybe you just need somebody to talk to. And a share. Ten years of a homeless psychiatrist didn't do squat. Mm -hmm. Two years of somebody just loving me the way I was and being patient and being there did miracles. Yeah. And, and and again, there's always those fringe exceptions where where you do need mm -hmm. help. Okay. Yeah, yeah, but 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 I, I think I think what I'm trying to get at here is is there's a lot of things we can do in the in the context of church fellowship to help one another face those little trials of life, and, and if we're doing that on a constant basis, what is not happening? We're not building up this massive baggage that we got to unload at times, but we do it a little bit at a time, having a good friend to talk to, to be with, to share life with. It's so critical. And, and one of the things, and, and I'll put in a plug here for a session coming up in a couple of weeks, is that's really the job, to a large extent, of the older women in the church. The older women, according to Titus, should teach the younger women to love their children, love their husbands, be chaste, keepers at home, godly women. Look at the average young single mother today, or mother period. Who does she talk to? I mean, I'm talking in generality. I'm not trying to pick on anybody in particular. I'm just saying, in generalities, Oprah. yeah, you go to Oprah. <laughs> yeah, that's going to help you out. Or, 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 or some, some 
thing on Dr. Phil or something like that. You go back, you know, 150, 200 years out on the American frontier, and people built their houses together so that if you're a young woman, you had kids or struggling with things, you had some older women around that have been down the road and been beat up and know what it's like to deal with that and can be there to help you and just encourage you. And yet young, young women today, they have none of that. They're, they're sort of on their own. And Titus really says the job of the older woman, women in the church is to be mentors and models and helps to the younger women. Because that's not an appropriate role for a man to fulfill. I was talking to Linda Williams one time about her parenting toolbox classes mm -hmm. that she runs, which are excellent. But she said she has found that your younger woman is ill-equipped because the generation before them has had so much brokenness. Now, that doesn't mean every single thing. No, that, we're not, yeah. <laughs> and telling these women basic principles that have been true on God's word for generations. Right. And we're talking about this throughout society here. You know, when you look at the, the average young career woman, you know, she's so busy with her career and everything else. The kids are in daycare for the most part. And, and I'm not saying that there's not Again, there's not situations where that's just the way it is. You've got to deal with it. But when you look at from the 20,000-foot level, if you're a young woman today and you have kids, and who do you talk to? You know, who, who do you talk to when you're struggling with a child or when you're just wore out because it wears you out to raise kids? Uh, who do you talk to? Who do you share with? Who, who can give you some insight? Well, the older women are nowhere to be found. And unfortunately, I believe, I believe in the church, I really believe this, in the church, we should have a group of older women who are there to mentor and be in friends with and share with the younger women who need that desperately. And a lot of times it's what? It's just somebody to talk to. No. You know, I mean, I haven't been a Christian that many years, so I, I mean, in the older world, I can, I'm pretty young still as a Christian, and, uh, you know, I don't, I never didn't want to be told what to do. Yeah. Just want to listen. Help yeah. Help me talk it through and kind of figure things out. And see, that, that's where the confess our faults one to another and, and share with one another and encourage, that's where, that, that's where it comes in. Alan. Yeah. You have some mothers that want to, um, Yeah. We, you know, we got all this. Got to keep sowing the seed. You know, and and that's, you know, that's one of the things where, you know, I think as a church, I'm talking about church general, not our church, but churches in general, Christian church, we've really dropped the ball. Because, younger women just don't have, a venue. To find somebody to just talk to. A lot of times it's just talking to somebody. You know, you have those days where you're just drained and you just want somebody to talk to. Yeah. Um, I had a friend uh, come over and she's a working mother. 
If I was a young woman and I had a couple of screaming toddlers, it'd be nice to have an older woman that's been down the screaming toddler road and can help me deal with that. <laughs> I mean, that would be great. But see, today, the older women are all busy. So who do you call? Who, who do you with? There, there aren't any. All right. Um, Rebuke sin in one another. What does that mean? When you see somebody sinning egregiously, when, when it's open rebellion, what do you do? You confront them. Matthew 18. And, and if you do that over a period of time, what happens to that, to the fellowship? It, it grows stronger because people know, hey, this place cares for me. They're not out to just, you know, pick on me. That's not the point. But they care for me. This is a place where where I'm cared for. And by the way, that's why you should be a member of the church. So if you're not a member of the church, you ought to be a member of the church. Just do it. Go for it. Bear one another's burdens. I'll get back to forgive. Bear one another's burdens. What's it mean to bear one another's burdens? If you have a bad day, a bad week, you're having a rough time on the job, you're having a rough time with somebody, um, it's nice to be able to share that. And we are to bear one another's burdens. The idea of bearing one another's burdens is you go alongside that person and help them, lift them up, encourage them. And it's nice to be able to have someone that you can bear a burden with. And sometimes, what do you want? What do you need? You just need somebody to listen. You just need somebody to listen to you, to talk to you, to, to share with you and just say, you know, I, I care for you. Let me pray with you right now. And sometimes that does more for you than anything else. Just somebody bearing what Steve, you were going to say something earlier, and I ignored you, didn't I? Oh, I, the point's lost, but it was the second part of that James verse that mm -hmm. says that the, uh, the earnest prayers of a righteous man availeth much. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Forgive one another. This is very important. What does it mean to forgive one another? It means forgive. Um, sometimes you don't feel like it, do you? But forgiveness is a decision, not an emotion. And what does it mean to forgive one another? Don't, don't hold grudges. You say, yeah, but they're an idiot. Yeah, they might be an idiot. Think, of what, think about uh, how you respond to God, right? God's forgiven you. How dare you not forgive somebody else? That's part of, that's part of body life, right? That's part of a family. In a family, if, if a husband or a wife offends one another, what do they need to do? They need to forgive. If they can't forgive, what happens? It festers, it bubbles, it boils, it, and it gets ugly. Donna and I have made a pact. When we first got married, we made a pact that we would not go to bed angry at one another. And I think we've succeeded, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've never went to bed angry at one another. 
and don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Deal with it. Get it over with. Get it out. Because we all offend one another. I mean, I, there, I say things that offend people, and I don't mean it. It's not like I wake up and say, I want to offend that person. I'm going to say something that really hurts them. But they might take it the wrong way or something. Learn to forgive. Learn to have a short, you know, a short offense period. And that's one of the things my mother has blessed me with is I don't, it's hard to offend me. You've got to work at it. It takes some energy, effort, time to really get me mad. And not many people have been able to pull it off. But I, I'm thankful for that because I don't have that long grudge list where you step on my toe and I remember it for the next 30 years. What kind of life is that? That, that chokes out fellowship. Yeah. I do. I have a problem holding a grudge in one of my things. I work on that constantly. It's really easy for me because I get somebody to sign the Sometimes they appreciate that. But I also, I'm raising two of my grandkids. Mm -hmm. You know, my kids are in and out and whatever. But one time they were just, I, you know, was like, they did not appreciate all that I've done. And I mean, it was like very clear in something that the 15 year old did. And I, he's really a good kid. But I mean, I was just going on, you know, to myself. I'm in the bedroom and I'm just, you know, you know pouting. And, you know, how, how dare he not appreciate everything that I've done for him? How can he treat me this way? You know, what a moron. And, you know, on and on. And I mean, clear as anything, I hear God say, not even how I feel. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. I get over it, but Yeah, if you if you learn to forgive and not hold grudges, you'll live longer and happier. All right. Um, you really will. And the problem with, with the unforgiving spirit, and we don't want to spend time on this, we spend all the rest of the week and next week talking about it, but it poisons you. It's a self poisoning. You want to commit suicide just to have an unforgiving spirit. It doesn't hurt the other person, does it? For the most part, they might not even know you're mad at them. But boy, it's, it's, it's eating you alive. Get over that. Learn to, learn to let go of those things. And that's what love does. In, in 1 Corinthians 13, love covers a multitude of sins. Love is forgiving. Love is kind. Don't allow it to fester. It, it'll destroy yourself. No, there, there, there are consequences to, to people's behaviors. There's consequences for people's behaviors, you know. But forgiveness is, is, is giving up your right of revenge, your right of getting even, all right? And a lot of times, here's, here's the other thing. A lot of times people offend us. They don't even know that they offended us. They don't even know that they said anything or did anything. Yeah. Down in the Broadway, that church, there's a sign that says, Forgive your enemy, it annoys them. Yeah. Yeah. Forgive your enemies, it annoys them. Well, nothing annoys them more. Yeah. Yeah, when they treat you badly and you don't retaliate and you don't get angry and you don't get mad and you don't want to go. What did Christ do when he was mistreated? I mean, he's being nailed on a cross, and what's he asking God to do to the ones nailing him on the cross? Forgive them. 
I see that especially with um, uh, grandparents, um, the children, you know, the grandchildren, the parents will uh, say they're mad at the grandparents, so you can't go over and see them because you know, yeah. you're mad at them now, you know, but as soon as they need the grandparents, they call them up and the children can come over. And the grandparents usually act like, okay, I want to see my grandchildren, so they don't say anything about it. Mm -hmm. They know that they've been mad and yeah. withholding the grandchildren. They know it, but they, they don't say anything. They just... Mm. As believers, we need to be forgiving people. We need to forgive other people. We need to be kind and forgiving. That doesn't mean you allow yourself to become a doormat. You may you know, have to take steps to prevent that. But you don't hate the person. You love the person instead. Um, gently restore one another. What does that mean? To restore one another to usefulness. If somebody says they're sorry, what do you do? You forgive them. How, how many times? Unlimited. Unlimited. Why? How many times has God forgiven you the same sin? Yeah, now I've tell you what, I've hit the 490 limit on a lot of sins a long time ago. And he still forgives me. We forgive others as Christ has forgiven us. We prefer the weaker brother. What does that mean? It means that I care for someone who is spiritually struggling or spiritually weaker than I am. How does this work out? Well, this is all in the context of Christian liberty. And what does it mean? What it means there is that I need to defer my rights for the benefit of someone else. That's maturity, right? So I might think, for example, that it's okay to have a glass of wine with spaghetti, which, by the way, the Bible doesn't forbid. You know that. It doesn't forbid it. But in our society, that's, alcohol is seen as a negative thing. And in many churches, it would absolutely freak out a young Christian. Or it may freak out the person who's been an alcoholic all their life and has come to know the Lord. So what do I do? I, for, I just forego that personal liberty. Yeah. And, and I don't do it by saying, oh, you know, little baby What's here is I got to give it on. No, you do it. You do it graciously. You, 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 defer, you defer your right for the benefit of someone else. Because you're more concerned about their welfare and their maturity than you are about your own. You give up your rights. All right? And that's part of being mature. That's what you do in a family. That's what you do in a family. If, if you have someone in a family that struggles in a particular area, you don't try to force them to do things and, and to their detriment, right? You care for them. You defer your rights. You defer what you want to do for the good of the body. You do that for your kids, right? That's part of body life. That's part of being spiritually mature. And it's not that... Here, you look down on the weaker brother as a baby, or you condescend, right? But it does mean you set your clocks right. <laughs> 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 we 
we, we made a deal that when somebody walks in, we're going to remind them of the clock. All right. <laughs> uh, yeah. But um, but deferring to the weaker brother just means just that 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 we care about other people more than we care about our own rights. So I'll put my right on hold for their benefit, even though it might be something I'm perfectly entitled to do, or perfectly free to do, I'm going to put it on hold. Why? Because I care for them. I love them. I want to see the best for them. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And here's the principle. I'll tell you what the principle here is. Never violate somebody's conscience. Okay? If they think it is wrong, don't argue with them. Don't cajole them. Don't try to talk them into it. Rather, just defer. All right? Now, there may, there may be a time when you can discuss those kind of things. But don't force them to violate their conscience. Because if you violate their conscience, what are you causing them to do? Sin. You understand? When you violate your conscience, that's sin. Don't violate your conscience. Don't violate your conscience. Comfort one another and exhort one another. What does it mean by that? When somebody has a catastrophe or a, a real disaster, what do you do? You comfort one another. Pray for them. You pray for them. You talk to them. You show up. You show that you care for them. Notice what this is like. This is like a family, right? This is what you do in a family. If your spouse is hurting, what do you do? You care for them. You comfort them. You forgive them. It's all about relationship. You notice that? How do you maintain healthy relationships? Here's how you do it. You pray for one another. When you're praying for another person's struggles, you become part of that struggle with them. And you encourage them in their struggle. And that's what Paul did. When Paul was saying, uh, writing to the churches, his, his prayers were saying, I'm praying for your spiritual health and well-being. And I want you to pray for mine. That God will give me a door, an open door, that I can share the gospel and share the ministry. Edify one another. What's that mean? To build one another up, not tear one another down. We like to do the opposite, don't we? We tear one another down. We gossip about one another. Here's the thing. Ask yourself, when, when I meet somebody or talk to somebody and they walk away, have I nudged that person closer to Christ? Or have I nudged them away from Christ? What's been my influence on them? Is my actions, my attitudes, the thing I said, does that make them closer to Christ? Has that built them up? Has that encouraged them? Or have I just tore them down? Have I just made them feel worse? How did Christ deal with people? He, he encouraged them. He built them up. And, and here's one of our troubles here a lot of times is those of us who've been Christians for a long period of time we lose sight of the fact that some people have struggles in their lives that we've long gotten over and we don't have a lot of patience for them and we need to have patience for those who are younger believers to bring them along to help them grow and mature and this may have been something that we worked through 20 years ago but you know that person's going through it very new right now so let's encourage them Instead of beating on them or criticizing them or telling them to quit whining or 
Why don't you just go do what the verse says and get over it? Encourage them. Admonish them. Help them. Be positive to them. Right. The idea here, admonish one another. What does that mean? To, to encourage to godly living. To encourage people to do the godly thing. To witness, to pray, to read their Bible. To engage in the spiritual disciplines. And notice all of these things here. This is all within the context of a relationship. This is relational activities to strengthen and, and build a stronger relationship. What some other responsibilities of the church is to care for its own in times of need. What does that mean? Um, when somebody loses a job or, or has trouble, what, where should they go to be able to get help? To the church. Now what have we done in America in that regards? We've run the other way, right? We've run the other way. Now let's understand what we mean by here in time of need, okay? Because there are those professional Christian bums. You ever run into them? Where they, they're always in trouble, they always have need, but it's always because they're irresponsible that's not what this verse is talking about. It's not talking about those areas where someone is irresponsible because Paul has a, has a message for them in First Thessalon or Second Thessalonians 3. If any man does not work, neither should he eat. Yeah. Alright? So if you're not doing that which you should do, don't expect the church to give you a continual handout. However, if you have those catastrophic events in your life where there's a significant need that comes along, where should be the first place you should go? To the church for help. And we should help one another. We should care for one another in times of need. And that's part of being a Christian, according to James, right? If anyone sees your brother or sister naked and destitute of daily food, you say, well, I hope everything goes okay with you. That's a lot of help. Yeah, it may be that you need to help that person. That, that's what body life is. That, what would you do in a family? If your child needed clothes, what would you do? Well, kid, hope you, hope you find some. You go get them, right? I mean, that's, that's what you would do. That's what any normal parent would do. If your child is hungry, you say, oh, I hope you find something to eat. No, you feed him. What do you do in the church? What do you do in the body of Christ? We are to help one another in times of need. Yeah. Uh, versus, you're not trying to do anything. I mean, right. You know, fine. You lost your Ford motor, steel mill, whatever, huge income. But if you're out there trying to do something, 
Right. As opposed to just, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And see, here, here's the thing. How is this best? We can get on the whole social, all this argument, but how best is that to be handled? Well, it's to be handled on an individual level because if you work with people individually, you know where they're coming from. You know what they're up to. And that's better than sitting in Washington just saying, well, we'll give them another, you know, extension. And I'm not saying that's wrong. We have those mechanisms in society that help those people. We should use those. But they don't know whether that person is trying or not. And sometimes we need to encourage people and help people. And, you know, that, that's part of what it means to be in a body. I mean, I knew a friend of mine who, who worked, but he didn't work at a job that made any money, and he wouldn't go get a job to make money. His idea was, if I only make $5 an hour and I need 10 to live, that's where you come in. And the idea is, no, that's where you got to go and maybe find a second job or get a job that makes 10. Well, I don't like that kind of work. Well, that's why they call it work. <laughs> How many of you work at a job that you just wake up every day and just are thrilled to death to be in there working? Not many. <laughs> there are some, there are some that that is, but you know what, there are other jobs where it's not, if they didn't pay you, you wouldn't show up. That's part of the curse. But there are, there are Christians that expect the church to do things when they're not doing their part. And that's where the church discipline and admonishment comes in, where you, sometimes if they don't work, they shouldn't eat. And that's the kind thing to do is to help them become productive members. Yeah. That's where you need to pray for wisdom. Yes. To discern between enabling somebody to perpetuate inadequate behavior and encouraging them to push ahead some more and try right. harder. And that's why, you know, if somebody approaches you, there are some people that are just sops. They'll just give you everything they can, right? Yeah saps, I guess. Well, if, if you're that kind of person, then get somebody with the gift of discernment to help you make sure that your money's being used appropriately. And there are those needs, right? There are those cat catastrophic, you know, bang, things happen needs that we need to help one another with. But then there are those perpetual needs where someone is just not doing what they should be doing. And they need to learn that discipline and need to learn that you know, that, that uh, holding their feet to the fire, so to speak. Um, you see this, by the way, just so you understand, you see this in First Timothy chapter 5, where it talks about the women, the older women in the church, how they're to be added to the roles. And the idea of being added to the role there is to have a daily um, allowance of food and care by the church. And Paul lists out what are the requirements to being put on the role. You have to be at least 60 years old. You've had to wash the saints' feet. You have to be active in the church. I mean, there's a whole list of things. It's not just take in everybody, but take in those people that are your own. And if they're a part of your body and they're part of your assembly, you should help them. You should encourage them. It is to provoke Israel to jealousy. The idea there, and we're going to talk about this more in eschatology, but one of the reasons that God drew the church out to himself is to make Israel jealous. Because, wait a minute... If you're in Israel, I say, wait a minute, what, what, what's God doing with the church? We're, God, we're God's chosen people. Why is he with the church? And it's to make them jealous and to make them question why, what is God doing to draw them back to God. Is to prepare rulers for the millennium. What does that mean? What's, your, what's our reward as a, as a church? 
to rule and reign with Christ. Now, where are we going to do that? In heaven? All right, when the eternal state starts, everybody's perfect, right? Who are you going to rule over? It's the 1,000-year reign of Christ. That's where we're going to do that. In the eternal state, everybody's perfect. In the eternal state, there is no need for hierarchy or rule or authority. or That all goes away. But in the millennium, part of our reward is we get to rule and reign with Christ in his kingdom. That's part of our reward. And where does that come from? It comes from the church. That's part of our reward as faithful people in the church. We are to act as salt and light in this world. We talked about this earlier on. What does that mean? We're to be a preservative. We're to enhance the taste. We're to be a light to people to draw them to Christ. And uh, unfortunately, a lot of times what we do, we become irritants, don't we? We become irritating. We, we, we make the world our enemy. Look, folks, you don't need to make the world our enemy. It is our enemy. You don't make it anything. It already is the enemy. It is the mission field. And we can't take on the world, and we can't expect the world to act like the church acts. We talked about this, right? I can't expect a pagan to have the same moral code that I have as a Christian. Why? Because they're pagans. They don't know the Lord. They don't have that. But what am I to do? I'm to be a person that, I'm to be a light. What does light do? Light shines and, and gives the, the spiritual understanding that they may see their sinful condition. They may draw on to Christ. I'm to be salt in the sense that I'm a preservative. I'm to enhance the message of Christ. Um, we're going to talk about this in Titus. I am to adorn the doctrine of God. How do I adorn it? What does it mean to adorn something? It makes it look good, right? And what it says in Titus chapter 2 is it talks about the older men, older women, younger men, younger women. And it talks about slaves. And it says you're to do all these things so that you may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior who would have all men everywhere to repent. When somebody looks at the church and they see a church that's um, splintered, they see a church that's divided, they see a church that's no different than they see people in the world, what does that tell them about Christ? Let's understand something here. You represent Christ. People are forming their opinion of who Christ is by looking at your life. And it's not all about you. It's about, do you make Christ look good? And sometimes you have to ask yourself, I need to do the right thing, not because I feel like it, not because I necessarily want to do it, but because I don't want to bring a reproach on the name of Christ. Do we bring reproaches on the name of Christ by the way we act sometimes? Yeah. Yeah. If we are short-tempered at work, if we're an, 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 an irritant at work, what does that say about Jesus Christ? If we're sour pusses, what does that say about Christ? We are a reflection of who Christ is. People are going to make their opinion of God by looking at your life. 
And that's why we're to act as salt and light in the world. We're to promote all that is good. We're to promote healthy, good things. Not the rot of society. We're not to be like the world. Why? Because the world is rotting. We're to think what is good, hold fast to what is good. And we are to make as many people as much like Jesus in the shortest amount of time possible. What's that? That's make a disciple, right? What is the... What's the motto of this church? To lead, becoming, my Christ. How do you do that? Well, you've got to evangelize them, right? That's the bees. You've got to evangelize them. You've got to bring them to Christ. And then you make them a disciple. What's a dis make them a disciple? Make them go out so that they can reproduce others. And discipleship is a process. And how do you do that? You do that in the sharing of the church. You do that within the confines of the church. We were just talking about that. Where you, have, you care for one another. You have fellowship with one another. You encourage one another. You admonish one another. You build one another up. That's all part of this process. Well, we're going to stop right there. Because okay. we're going to pick up the pictures of the church next week. Okay. We're done a minute early. Mm -hmm. How's that? Any questions or comments? Here. All right. Well, let's close in a word of prayer. Father, thanks so much for bringing us to your house. And I pray that you would help us to ponder what we've studied today, that we might encourage one another, admonish one another, lift one another up, be positive influences, so that we may be salt and light in this world, that people will be drawn to the great God and Savior that you are. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks, Dr. Schiff.